Father, we thank you for your word, how instructive it is. It provides for us wisdom and insight. It can prevent errors in our lives. And it can point the direction for having success in this life. Father, help us to learn by the examples that are put forth, the teaching that Jesus gave while he was here. Help us not to shun it, but embrace it, even though at times it can be extremely difficult. Help us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit to pay attention to what your Spirit says to this church. And Father, may we glorify you through our obedience. And may you, again, show your mercy and your grace to us when we fail. For we know you are a good and loving, gracious and merciful God. So instruct us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. And this is where it deals with love of your enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Not even the tax collectors, or aren't even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect then, as your Father is perfect, your Heavenly Father is perfect. So this idea of perfection, uh, did you ever think that you could be perfect like God? The word that is used there does not mean perfection. We cannot perfect this body. We cannot perfect this life. It is so corrupt that God has to destroy it and give us a new body and give us a new heart on the inside without the old heart. He's going to separate all that sin, that fleshly nature, all of that, the decaying in body. He's going to separate that from us and give us that which is new. What he's talking about here is being mature. We are mature if we do what he is commanding here, if we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And so the point of the text, if you go from verse 43 through verse 48 here, the point of the text, I'm going to give you four points here. We are rewarded by God in heaven when we do good things for those who hate us as believers. We are rewarded in heaven when we do good things to those or for those who hate us when we get to heaven. And so we have this motivation to do what is good. Some people like to say, I, I just want to be in heaven, that's it. But God places before us this idea of being motivated. He gives us a reward. He gives us a perk. Have you ever been a child? And of course you've been a child. But when you were a child, did your parents come to you? And, and did they say something like, if you clean up your room and you rake up the leaves, I will get you some ice cream. And that motivated you to do something because you wanted the ice cream. Well, God has the same thing for us. When we get to heaven, we get rewards. Now, this reward, it's referred to in a, a metaphorical sense in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, wood, hand, stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. It's also referred to in scriptures like as a crown of righteousness and a crown of glory. God is going to give us these crowns which exist in heaven. And I don't know that they're going to be crowns that you actually put on your head or that hover over your head. 
when somebody has a crown, they are those who are deserving of honor. And if we follow Christ, we will receive honor, just as Christ received honor. Now, we're not to look at it as people will honor me, but it is something that is a byproduct of what we would receive when we get to heaven. So this idea that we are rewarded by God in heaven when we do good do good things for those who hate us as believers. Secondly, our reward is supposed to be our motivation. And as I was just expanding on this, sometimes we we think we're so spiritual, I don't need a reward, it's just to love God and to serve him. No, God says, I, I want you to do this because I want to bless you with something more than just eternal life. I want to give you something on top of that. Thirdly, we are not to limit our good deeds to those we know, love, and trust. Isn't it easy to do good for like our neighbors or our friends? It makes us feel wonderful when we do good things. What about, Patty and I were talking about traffic the other day. What about the guy who cut you off in, in traffic? Do you want to do good for them? Lord, bless them. I want to pray for them. What about somebody who cheats you out of some money? Do you want to bless them? Do you bake them cookies and say, you know, I just want to just do this for you. I I just felt I wanted to bless you. I wanted to make your life happy. Somebody who cheated you, somebody who backstabbed you, somebody who gossiped about you, or somebody who murmured about you. It's just they don't like what you're doing. They're upset and they tell other people. Do you want to just go bless them and walk up to them like if it's somebody in church? Do you walk up to them if you know that that took place? Give them a hug and say, I really, if it's a guy, like a guy goes up to another guy and says, I love you, man. Or if it's a woman, oh, you sweet sister, I love you. You know, something like that. Do you do that when you know that you're just not getting along? Things aren't comporting the way they're supposed to be. You're not in parallel as far as your commitment to Christ. And there may be somebody that just cause you, causes you a lot of anxiety in church. And just because of who they are, do you still just bless them? I mean, we can get deeper into this, but it's this idea of not just blessing those we know, love, and trust. And if we do these things, we are considered mature. We are immature if we do not do these things. If we see somebody that we just don't get along with, have you ever had somebody you just avoid in church or in the store? You see them out there and you go, yeah, there they are, yeah. I'm taking the other aisle. I'm driving the other way. I'm not going to have a conversation with them. I'm going to avoid them at church. If they're coming down the hallway over there, I'm, I'm going to go around the long way and go under the net and go back this way. I don't want to talk to them. And God says, no, don't do that. Have the communication open between you and bless those who persecute you and despitefully use you. Now, with this, How do you specifically do good to those who are our enemies and to those who hate us or persecute us more specifically? In the context of these verses, it says, number one, you can pray for them. And it's not like, Lord, they are a sinner and they need to be saved. Would you please convict them and just drive them to their knees? Well, that would be good in the context of salvation. But what about... 
Lord, would you just bless them, have their day just turn out so well that they come home and they are just as happy as they can possibly be, that no matter what takes place in their day, they're just filled with joy. Do we do that for our enemies? We don't. We don't, at least, I don't know about you, but I don't. I don't want to do that. I fight against that. I want to hold a grudge. There's no heavier burden to bear than a grudge. It ruins our whole day. We carry that thing around and we won't let go of it and, and we hate it, but we still grab it and we drag it behind. Come on, your grudge and you're dragging it with you and you refuse to just let it go. I, I've done that. I just refuse to let it go. It's so hard because we have this sense of justice. We want to be justified. We want to be stood up and said, that person is correct and that person is definitely wrong and they are a sinner and they need to repent, that type of thing. And God doesn't want us to do that. So the first thing is pray for them. The second thing is die. Now this can mean figuratively or even literally. Do you guys remember, at least when I was in what was called junior high. In junior high, we had an English lit class. And in, in this English lit class, we saw two black and white movies. One of them was The Grapes of Wrath with Henry Fonda. Now, I don't know if you guys remember that movie, but... It was during the Depression, and it was kind of rough and tough during that time. So we saw that movie. The other movie that we saw was A Tale of Two Cities. And in the cart at the end, there is a man who is sacrificing his life for the love of his life that loves somebody else that is being sent to the guillotine. So he gets into prison, and he switches identities places with this person who is an aristocrat it's about the french revolution and he sets him free to love the love of his life and he goes to the guillotine and he says it is a far far better thing that i do now than i have ever done he actually gave up his life for somebody who could have been an enemy and he could have had the woman of his dreams but he gave up his own life. I still remember that movie thinking, and I was junior high, I think I was seventh grade or eighth grade. I'm going, why would anybody do something like that? You get the girl, you know? Well, why would you intercede? And it's this idea of dying. That's what Christ did for us. Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. And so that's what he's talking about here. Even your enemy, would you die for your enemy? Would you give up everything you have to bless somebody else because you know you have an inheritance that's waiting you. You can't take anything with you in this life. And so there, there's something up ahead. Now I want to give you a, another real life example of this. I found out about this a couple of years ago. There was this young girl. She moved to another state. And when she moved to another state, she went to this high school and she was a new student in this high school. And she made she was fast to make friends there, but there were a couple of girls that did not want to be her friends. And they were in the lunch room, the lunch area, and she knew that they were constantly gossiping about her. That they would say things about her that weren't true. They would try to paint her in a bad light. And this girl, she was sweet, sweet girl. <clears throat> and so what this girl decided to do, and this girl's a believer, 
she walked up to him in the lunchroom. They're sitting down together and they're talking. Now, if you can get this in your mind, three girls interacting, two of them hate the one, and the one is the Christian, walks up to the two that hate her. Now, what do you think their facial expressions are going to be at that point? Like, what are you, like, what are you doing here? You know, that type of thing. This is what she said to them. She said, you know, I, I don't know whatever I've done to the two of you. I'm new here at this school, but I, I've heard a couple of things. And, you know, I just wanted to know if you wanted to come over to my house and have some pizza tonight. And I thought to myself, really? She, she actually did this and they came over and they're friends. You know, they were friends after that. That's not my experience in high school. My experience in high school was, you want to fight about it? You know, or in junior high, those types of things would take place. And when this girl did that, I thought, wow, that is loving your enemies. That is doing something to benefit them so that you can change their attitude about you or even about Christ. Now, this maturity that we're supposed to be going to or, or towards, or we're supposed to work towards, I would ask you a question and, and seek for an application on this. Is it proper to pray for maturity and work for it? What would you say? Don't, don't you think it's a good idea to become mature? Would you pray for your own children to become mature? You would say, yeah, would you, fathers, just grow up, you know, something like that. You want your kids to grow up. You want them to mature. Are you going to get a job or are you going to play video games all day? Look, side note, did you hear about this beautiful weather girl that was dating this guy and she's like a celebrity and this guy was a nobody, 26 years old, he ends up dating this girl and this girl gets dumped by the 26-year-old guy because he wants to spend more time playing Fortnite, which is a video game. I digress. I, I, you know, I, I, the guy is immature is what he is. Are you kidding me? You want to play a video game instead of date this beautiful woman and maybe marry her and have a wonderful life? Immature. His, his focus is in the wrong thing. So God wants us to be mature. So it's good to pray, God, make me mature. You think you should pray for patience? Oh, <laughs> no, I don't want to pray for patience. Uh-uh. Well, if you pray for patience, what happens? You get trials that come along where you have to be patient, right? And you don't want to do that. Well, you think maturity is any different? In the context that was just delivered to us from verse 43 to 48, we are mature if we love our enemies. God, make me mature. What's he going to do? He's going to bring your enemies. He's going to set them right down before you. And guess what you get? A personalized trial made just for you where you get to love your enemy. So who wants to pray to become a tour? 
Okay, I got about five, six, seven. See, this is the point. This is what Christ is asking us to do. He wants us to be mature. He wants us to pray for our enemies. He wants us to pray for patience. He wants us to move along in our lives, but it requires us to die. Who wants to be a believer? Who wants to go to heaven? Who wants to be improved? Who wants to have a happy life? Christ doesn't always call us to that. Christ calls us to sometimes a life of sorrow, to a life of becoming mature, to a life of conflict. In uh, Philippians chapter 1, it says, you have been given the privilege to suffer for him. This is a radical teaching. If you go to churches today, how you can be successful in this life, how you can be prosperous. God wants you to be prosperous. Really? Where does it say that in Scripture? God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be conformed. He wants us to be mature. He wants us to be patient. He wants us to have self-control. And to test all of those things, to bring those to maturity, you have to go through the trials. So the two things, biblically speaking, do not match up. They are not parallel. They are not interlocking when you have the world saying, God wants you to be happy. No. He wants you to be blessed and holy and mature and patient. You think that's popular? It's not. There are people like Joel Olstein that smile and say, you know, I just, God wants to bless you. Well, no, sometimes God wants us to suffer. Now, I'm not being like a, you know who Schleprock is? <laughs> I'm not being a Schleprock. I'm not being, what's the donkey's name on Pooh? Eeyore. I'm not being Eeyore. I'm not being Schleprock. Like, oh, woe is me. You know, I'm not doing that. We can have joy in the midst of the trials. And those people who really suffer, I I mean, if they're in Christ, they learn things that we have never learned or experienced. You know, the killing fields, we've gone over to Cambodia several times, and there was a story that I was familiar with. I read of this man who is, I I believe it was a Cambodian uh, prison camp. And he was in charge of cleaning the latrines. Now, the latrines in Vietnam, or excuse me, in Cambodia, maybe it was Vietnam, but in one of those two countries, the latrines consisted of a bucket. And he had to clean the bucket. That was his job. And he was getting discouraged and he was persecuted, beaten, mistreated. And he was a believer, but he was ready to give up his faith. And he needed something. And so he prayed, God, would you you just please give me something? If you don't give me something by tomorrow, that's it. I'm done. And he prayed earnestly. And so God did. Now, this is its a little graphic, but I'm going to tell you what God did. His CO, his commanding officer, the one that was over him, he was a prisoner, but this guy was in the head of the prison, would come in and use the latrine. And they, there was a shortage of paper. And I don't have to explain what the paper was for. But the paper ended up being a Bible. And so he was cleaning the latrine and he saw the Bible in there 
And he just got humbled. He cleaned off the page. And he virtually had an entire Bible in the time that he was there. And God blessed him with it. And he was so thankful that God met him. But that's how it arrived. Now, I'm not signing up for a trial like that. I, I don't know about you, but there are Christians all over the world who are being persecuted, who are being commanded to love their enemies. And here we have a hard time loving the people that sit next to us or behind us or in traffic. You see what Christ is calling us to? He's calling us to this walk that is just completely radical to the way the world acts. And sadly, it's often the case that we simply endure those whom we claim to love and we don't go beyond and we speak evil beyond what we're supposed to and we speak evil of those who we claim to love and none of us are guiltless in this we've all done it at some time or another and it's at this particular point that we come to the realization that we can utter the words of paul in romans seven nineteen, he says for what i do is not the good i want to do no the evil i do not want to do this I keep doing. And so it is this constant battle to do what we're supposed to do. Abraham Lincoln said, Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And also Benjamin Franklin, he said, Love your enemies, for they tell you your faults. Now, why would you want to hang around somebody who tells you your faults? In today's environment... This is what people do. Don't say anything negative. I don't want any negative energy around me. It will invade my space, and I want my aura to be just right. That's falsehood. The wounds of a friend can be trusted. If somebody comes along and says, you know, look, I love you. You're my friend. I need to tell you this. This is an issue. And the person, instead of getting offended, that's receiving the criticism, constructive criticism, not berating, that person should say, thank you. You, you know, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to try to change this. Again, this is what Christ is calling us to. So the people who are our enemies, they work for our benefit. Even the people who are our friends will give us the right criticism that may even wound us. But that wounding is meant to help us. If we only surround ourselves with people that give us kudos and acclaim and say how wonderful you are, how handsome you are, how beautiful you are, how sweet you are, you think you might start believing it? The point is we have to have a proper view of ourselves and we do that when our enemies come along and Christ calls us to die for them, to love them, to pray for them, to be used by Christ, to be a witness for everyone that he puts in our path. Now going on, we have these acts that we just previously covered of adultery, that's the sinning in the heart, the taking of oaths, that's the sinning in the speech, the giving to those who ask. Remember, if somebody asks you of something, we have the sin of intent. I do not intend to give you this, and I'm going to make up some excuse. And then love of your enemy, that is the sin of action or inaction. We're not doing what Christ asked us to do. And in the context, remember, this is a Sermon on the Mount. The disciples are in front of them. Jesus is sitting down. The Pharisees are in the background. 
All these things he's talking about, he's giving instruction. This is how you should live as a believer, and this is how the Pharisees are acting, which is wrong. They're making the connection here. Now he goes on into giving, prayer, and fasting. He's just laying out these different things, and he's using as an example the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, those who claim to be religious, and they understand, they don't have to be told, they understand that when Jesus is speaking, he's saying they are the bad examples, this is what you are supposed to do. And so giving prayer and fasting. We're in Matthew chapter 6. We have moved on from Matthew chapter 5. We've been there about 10 weeks or so. In verse 1 it says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So we have giving, we have prayer here, and also we're going to come upon the fasting. So the Lord's prayer goes on from here. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So you have these three teachings here, and he says all of them are supposed to be in secret. You're not supposed to do them outwardly. And so let's just review for a minute. Here the giving. If you give money... What were they doing? They would set out people in front of them with trumpets. And they'd put the trumpet out there. And they'd walk up to the temple. And there would be this box out there. And they'd put the money in there. They'd pour it in, the gold coins or what. They'd make this big fanfare. And the people would stand by and go, oh, they're so spiritual. You know, and they would just be impressed by their actions which are out there. And they thought, wow, I wish I could do something like that. They were being an example, but a bad example. Jesus says, don't do it like, and what did he call them? Hypocrites. Now, I wonder if he's looking at his disciples and goes, don't be like the hypocrites. Who's he looking at? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Oh, and I've said it just about every week. Fulfillment, just 
popping veins out, apoplectic, out, just gurring on the inside, just really mad that Jesus would be doing it. Do not be like the hypocrites that do that because they'd make a big show of it is what they would do. He says, do this without proclamation. Secondly, not ostentatiously or flamboyant. You know, don't go out there and, and put the dancers in front of you and the trumpets and you know, go out there and put the money in there and it's a great, and everyone, oh, it's a wonder, it's great. Don't. He just says, don't do that. And thirdly, he says, without seeking recognition or honor for the gift. Now, this happens to us all the time. Yeah, we get these, not us, but us as a, a church, the church universal. You know, you get trade magazines, right? We, we get a trade magazine. One of them is for trash cans and floor mats and communion cups and uh, candles and, you know, all these things that would work in a church, clocks and soundboards and speakers, and we get all of that. We get these trade magazines coming in. And one of the things in the trade magazines that you can have for your church is you can have a tree. And this tree goes on the wall, like where the dove is over there or where these signs are over here. You put the tree on the wall, and the leaves on the tree are to be engraved for those who give gifts to the church. And they put your name on there. And sometimes they put the amount, but they'll put their name on there, and then they'll put it up there. Oh, look at the wonderful people who gave. If we ever put one of those up, just shoot me. Don't ever do that. Don't ever, I would say don't go to a church that does that because you're robbing the person of the blessing when you recognize them for the gift that they have given. And so when money is given in the church, like most of you who are ushers know, we made a change. We, we did this specifically when the offering is counted that we wanted to limit the number of people who had access to the names on the checks and who's giving what, because it's not good if a bunch of people know who gives what. We want it to be done in secret. Even when, if you guys give something and it's recorded, uh, we don't have a bunch of people doing that. One person records that. And they pray to forget. And I think the Lord grants that. And then when the letters come, our practice has been, you get the name, it says how much you have given, and the person signing, like the CFO who signs that, usually, I think this has been our practice, you cover the amount. You don't even look at the amount, you just write it. So if you got a letter that said $3 million, it's probably not right. But this idea that, you know, it, it, you get the name written down there, we, we don't want to know who gives what. I don't, I don't want to know that. Because it causes me in my heart to think things. When I was in seminary, they said, you need to do this. Take the people to the lunch who are the givers inside the church and buy them lunch and put the needs before them. And it's just hogwash with that, this, this idea that you would recognize somebody. We went up once. Have, who in here has been to the Crystal Cathedral? Anyone? A few of you guys. When you go to the Crystal Cathedral... And they've had the, the Christmas thing where they bring live camels down and it's a 
beautiful church and it, it, they bought the panes of glass. Originally, they bought the panes and they would inscribe somebody's name on it who paid for the pane. But I don't know that they're doing that with the new ones that have to be recycled or maintained or changed out. But they did on each chair, like these chairs here. I actually sat down in there in the um, men's conference. Afterwards, we said, let's go to the Crystal Cathedral. We had a van full of guys, and we went to the Crystal Cathedral. And it was open, and they just let us walk in, and the security guy was there. Oh, yeah, come on in. Take a look. And we sat down. There was a name on every chair of somebody who had given money for that chair and a name on every pane of glass, at least back at that time. Uh, here's what it is now. There are 11,236 glass window panes. Opportunities to dedicate a glass window pane ranges from $40 to $10,000. With each dedication, a certificate of authenticity and a letter of thanks from the Orange County Bishop, and names him, for donors who dedicated more than $100 each will receive a holiday ornament. Look, if you want to give something, just give. Just put it in the box. That's it. And I'll expand on giving a little bit here. But the, this idea, and by the way, have you noticed we don't formally receive an offering? Most of you know why. I have personally been offended by that. I don't like it. I don't like the two or three offerings. I... Money is not an issue for me. And it's so, it is so freeing. Let me tell you, I get to do my job, not worry about the money. If the Lord dries up the money, guess what time it is? Time to close the doors. That's it. And whose responsibility is it? All of ours. I was going to say yours. <laughs> it's all of ours. It's my responsibility. It's your responsibility. It's all our responsibility. And if you decide you don't want to give something, well, okay, we're going to close the doors. Guess what? It's not Bill's church. If somebody says, oh, we're going to Bill's church. Sorry, it's not my church. I can't sell this place and make a profit on it. It's right in the bylaws. It's not mine. I don't own it. I just show up here like you guys. I don't get received benefit like that I, I don't get to deposit hundreds of thousands of dollars if this place just closes and it's the lord's so it's not my church it's his and if money doesn't come in guess whose problem it is not mine it's his church if it needs a roof if it needs paint if it needs grassy whatever it needs it's not my problem it's his problem and if the lord wants it to continue he'll put it on your hearts to give if he doesn't want it to continue you will say that rickety snacking pastor bill we're never given anything okay great wonderful it just frees me completely so that's where the responsibility lies and that's how god wants it not because i just made it up it's because that's how it is in scripture do it in secret just give the only problem is sometimes we don't ask how much do you want me to give lord just ask him he'll tell you then this idea of praying. Do not stand in front of men and women praying to be seen by them. This is what he talked about in the previous passages through verse 18. And these guys, what they would do is they would go on the street corner and they would set out their robe, put their hands to heaven and scream at the top of their lungs is what they would do. And I'm sure that there are Christians that do that to gain some type of notoriety there's those who do it out of pure motives that preach out there and those who don't those who try to get money in an ostentatious fashion 
or give it in an ostentatious fashion and those who don't. The Lord knows. But he says also with prayer, don't make a big showy prayer. And there's ways to pray too, and I'll go into that. But this idea you're supposed to pray in secret. He says, go into your little room and pray in there. And he says, do not babble. Have vain repetition. Use the same words over and over. Before I got saved, I I was raised to pray. I was telling my granddaughter this the other day, that my mother, she was raised in a Baptist church. She went to Oral Roberts tent meetings, and they would burp up goiters and, you know, just things like, she would tell me about this. I would go, what are you dying? She goes, oh, yeah, these things would happen. And so she would come in when we were real small. I was probably five or six years old, and we had bunk beds. Remember those days when you, you put couple kids in a room bunk beds for you you don't get your separate room and so i had the top bunk bed and my mom of course she would walk right up to the top bunk and she would lean over she goes okay now we're going to learn how to say prayers at night and i said okay and she would say now i want you to repeat after me i said okay and she would say now i lay me yeah and i would say now i lay me and she'd say down to sleep down to sleep i pray the lord i pray the lord my soul to keep, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. You know, and so she would come in every night and she would teach us that prayer. And once we learned it, she would just stand there and listen to us pray. Now, we really didn't go to church much. We did when we were younger, but after that, you know, six or seven, we stopped going to church completely. But she taught me how to pray. So that's all I knew. That's how I prayed. Even when I got older, I don't know what to pray exactly. How about... Uh, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, okay, God, you, you accept that? And I did that when I was 19. You know, I was like, okay, I think I need to go on a little bit from this, but I'm not quite sure how to go on. And the, I would tell the Lord, I, I don't know what else to pray. And my mom would teach us, well, ask God to bless the family members. I, okay, God bless, and I'd, Mommy and daddy, grandma and grandpa, mom, you know, and I would go through the list of all of that. And so that's, that's how I learned it. But Jesus sets out a format for how we're supposed to, to pray here. And we'll get to that. But we're supposed to also acknowledge that God understands what we need before we ask him. And some people sarcastic, sarcastically will say, well, why do I need to ask him then? He knows what I need. Why do I have to go to him? Because he wants relationship. He wants us talking with him. He wants us communicating and and having that deep fellowship with him. But he says all this is contingent upon forgiveness, forgiving the offenses of those who have sinned against you. Whenever we are given the opportunity to forgive, we're supposed to forgive freely without holding anything against anybody. So that's what he says about giving and praying. And then there is fasting. He says, number one, do not look downcast and sullen, grim and gloomy. Oh, I'm fasting for the Lord. I'm so weak. You know, oh, are you really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm probably going to do this for three days. Pray for me, brother. I don't know if I'm going to make it. This is so grueling. And that's what these Pharisees were doing. They would do it for show. And he says, do not. Well, he said, do not starve when fasting to the point of disfiguring. So, uh, brother, I've been doing this for 10 days now. Can you tell? 
I'm getting a little thinner in my face. I know, it's hard. It's tough. And he says, anoint your head with oil. You know what that is? I'm going to give you a word. Vitalis. Brill cream. You, you put that in there, a little dabble, do you? You know, and you rub it through your hair and you get that wave going on. You, you look good in the mirror. It's all, he wants you to look good. He doesn't want you to look disfigured. He doesn't want you to look like you're starving to death and walking around in sackcloth and ashes. Oh, he's fasting and praying. He's so spiritual. I wish I could be like that, but I just don't have the strength. Jesus called him what? Yeah, hypocrite. And they would consider these people the most spiritual. He goes, no, when you're fasting, don't let anybody know. Now, I've talked about this before. Let your spouse know, or if they ask you, don't lie. Don't say, no, I'm not fasting. Do you want something to eat? No, I'm not hungry. And you go back, don't do that. But you don't want to make it obvious to those people who are around you. And who's supposed to fast? Everyone. Have you tried it lately? Now, I have to admit, I haven't done it lately. But should we? Well, there's reasons why you would fast. And those reasons I'll be getting into as we break down the giving, the praying, and the fasting. So we're not supposed to let it be obvious, and we're supposed to do that in secret. So all three of these, giving, praying, and fasting, are to be undertaken in a way that is secretive. Not like 007, something like that, but just a way that you don't announce it everywhere, that everybody's looking at you, oh, they're such a giver, oh, they pray so wonderfully, and they pray so often, and they're so faithful to that, and they're fasting, and all of these things are evident to everybody. See, the Pharisees, they sought to be counted righteous by appealing to others with their outward works. That's how they wanted to appear to everyone. Like, I'm a righteous person because I do these things. You know, good works cannot be hidden. And, and even though we do these things in secret, God will bless it. But the Pharisees specifically in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 7, he talked about this in verse 5. I'll focus on that one. He says, everything they do is done for men to see. We are not to do our works for men to see. It says they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and have men call them rabbi. These phylacteries, they were boxes, small boxes. God says, write them on your hand or on your forehead and put them on your house and that's why you have a mezuzah up there in a Jewish home and, and these boxes would contain scriptures and they would they have a way to wrap their arm with these leather bands that hold onto these boxes and they also have one they stick right in the middle of their forehead this little box that comes out if you want to look this up on Google not right now but you can look it up on Google when you go home and you can see just look up phylacteries and phylacteries, they will have these boxes, especially at the Western Wall. And they will, if they're righteous, they make them really big because there's big scriptures in there. And they look like they're more righteous. And the tassels, now all the Jews have prayer tassels, uh, especially this, this prayer shawl thing. They have these tassels that hang down, these devout Jews. Well, they'd make them really long. <laughs> bring them, I gotta bring my prayer tassels along, you know, carrying like ropes or something instead of tassels. Oh, they're so spiritual. 
God says, no, they do this for everybody to see, to give the idea that they are spiritual, but inside they are whitewashed tombs. Dead men are on the inside is what he was saying. And, of course, that was offensive to him. So righteousness is primarily, for us, it's a relationship between God and man or God and woman, not between two individuals. It's between God and us personally. The Pharisees believed that they could show others that they were righteous by what they did. And so God wants us to have a proper view of righteousness. Now, again, works testify about our righteousness. James 2, verse 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And so our actions are supposed to speak about the righteousness that God has imputed to us. But we don't do the righteous acts before people to be seen by them so that they will consider us righteous. God is the one that will honor us in that. Works bring reward and not salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because the more works you do, if it was works, the more righteous you are and the more blessed you are and the more reward in heaven you receive. That's not the way it works. It's simply by belief that we receive salvation, not by the works. The works are a result of salvation. How are we to give and to whom are we to give? Those who ask of you. How are you to do it? Without telling everybody, oh, yeah, I gave uh, 400 bucks to this guy, you know, because he needed it over there. Don't tell anybody. Don't, don't receive a pat on the back or don't look for the pat on the back when you do that. You also give when you see a need. Now, and this is separate from the church, but if you see people out there, you see a need, you can meet the need. But remember, there's always that caveat. Do not be deceived by those who would take advantage of you. Well, how do you know? Just ask God. He'll give you wisdom. Then, giving. Now, I could go into this giving, but we are right at the top. You know, I'll just touch on it. And I I will review this again next week, but I have at least six points on this. We're to give according to our income, without fanfare, regularly, cheerfully, not compulsory or under compulsion, and generously. Now, I'm going to give you all those scriptures next week. I'm going to expand on this a little bit. In our prayer, I'm going to go into the Lord's Prayer and break that down for you and why Jesus prayed that. He, he didn't give us that prayer, so we would pray it like, Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what you say all the time, and that's your prayer. It, nothing's wrong with saying that prayer, but if you say that prayer and that's all you say... He gave us an outline. That's what we have there. We have an outline of how we're supposed to pray, not what we're supposed to pray. Again, it, it's not wrong to repeat the prayer. You know, a lot of times in several denominational churches, the whole church will say that prayer. And it, it's wonderful to hear the congregation saying that, but we need to move on in our maturity. And I'm going to talk about the purpose of prayer, the posture of prayer, the value of prayer, hindrance to prayer. And pray when, and there's a whole list of things when we're to pray. By the way, Scripture just says you're to pray continually. So when are you not praying? That's the question. Not when are you supposed to pray. 
So all these things Jesus laid out for the benefit of his disciples. The multitudes were listening to it. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were being condemned for their hypocritical behavior. And God says, do not be like them. Remember, he says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees. It's not good. My prayer for you is that you can humbly accept this word, whether it's loving your enemies or being able to give in such a way where you get no reward, where people don't look at you because of what are considered righteous act and pat you on the back and just say, oh, it's wonderful. Not that it's good not to encourage people. We want to do that. But we don't want to have the attitude of, Lord, Bless me with the people telling me how good I am. No, we don't want that. We want the Lord saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word, how insightful it is. And when it comes to being mature, help us to be willing to sign up for that one too, Lord, and being patient. Help us to follow your instruction. Help us to not be prideful in our own hearts and think of ourselves more highly than we ought but help us to be sober in our thinking in our self-reflection understanding that you saved us even though we were destined for judgment we thank you for your grace and your mercy in jesus name amen